0: Hebrews chapter 12, if you would pray with me one more time. Almighty God, our gracious Father, you are holy, holy, holy. We come to you, Lord, in awe of your majesty, in awe of your goodness and glory. We pray, O Lord God, that you would speak to us this morning, that we would hear your voice through the preaching of your word, that we would behold you in all your glory. The words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Most people in our world, and this includes people in churches, tend to think of God in one of two ways. First is the idea of God being distant. They see God as infinitely distant from us, as different from us in the sense that he is absolutely impersonal. He is unknowable, the great unknown. Uh, There is no sense of relationship with him. This is very common in some religions of the world. The thought of even approaching God is terrifying. The other idea is the opposite. And this is the idea that God is very near to us. In fact, sometimes people think of God being so near that He is virtually indistinguishable from us. He's reduced to being like us, His creatures. Uh, These have been common in Christianity also through the ages. If you go back to the medieval world, of course, the idea of God's transcendence and His distance from us was emphasized. Uh, You see this in the way that the uh, old cathedrals were constructed, the idea that to approach God is even unthinkable in some ways. In modern evangelicalism and what's common in our day in churches uh, is much of the other idea, uh, that God is just like us. We reinvent and reimagine Him in our minds to be no different from us, helpless like us. In fact, uh, many evangelical Christians will just simply think of God as our buddy, personal buddy. And how you think about God is going to profoundly affect how you worship God and the posture of your heart with which you draw near to approach God. And it should come as no surprise that when we reinvent God in our own minds, when we imagine Him a certain way, we land with these opposite positions, both of which are distortions of the truths. You see, the one true and living God, the God of the Bible who reveals Himself to us in Scripture, is on the one hand, infinitely distant and far above us. He is transcendent. He is distinct from us. He is the Creator. We are creatures. He is blazing in His holiness. He is terrifying in His justice. He is awesome in His power and majesty. And at the same time, He draws near to us. He speaks to us. He reveals Himself to us, enters into covenant relationship with us as creatures and calls us, summons us to draw near to Him. And knowing God in this way ought to affect the posture of our hearts and how we seek to worship Him. And the question for us is, how can sinful people like us draw near to the One who is infinitely holy? How should we respond? What should the posture of our hearts be when we hear His Voice, the one who calls us. Well, today's text is going to answer those questions as the author of Hebrews brings us here in chapter 12 and shows us two assemblies and shows us the voice of God. Hear with me as I read from verse 18 and following. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, and to the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In light of who God is, and in light of how He has revealed Himself to us, the author of Hebrews calls us, God's Word calls us, to respond to God's revelation with gratitude and reverence. We must respond to God's revelation with gratitude and reverence, And we're going to see three reasons why we must respond to Him in that way. Three reasons why we must respond with reverence and gratefulness to God's revelation of Himself to us in Christ. First, we have come to God's heavenly assembly. We must respond to God with gratitude and reverence because we have come to His heavenly assembly. There's a contrast here, if you look in verses 18 to 24, between two mountains, two assemblies. And if you recognize the context of Hebrews, again, uh, this was a sermon preached by a concerned pastor to a congregation of Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, many of them facing persecution and afflictions, and they were tempted to abandon their faith in Christ and to go back to living under the old covenant and the author has repeatedly told them Jesus is better he is the fulfillment of the entire revelation and story of God he has reminded us throughout this letter that the old covenant was partial it was temporary it was provisional and as we come to Christ and the new covenant that he inaugurates this is what it was all pointing to that the Old Covenant had these animal sacrifices for sin that could never really wash away sins. But in Christ, we have received full and complete forgiveness of sins through His perfect sacrifice. And therefore, to go back would be deadly. And now, the author wants to show us that contrast between the Old Covenant and the New by showing us these two mountains, these two assemblies Mount Sinai, representing the Old Covenant, and Mount Zion. And you'll see the the descriptions are perfectly balanced. He gives us seven descriptors of each mountain. Seven descriptors of Mount Sinai. Seven descriptors of Mount Zion. In verses 18 to 21, we see the first mountain. And here he's referring to the incident that we heard read for us by our sister in Exodus chapter 19. When the people of Israel, under the leadership of Moses assembled at Mount Sinai and God came to meet with them. And it was terrifying. Notice how the author describes this mountain, this assembly in verse 18. He says it was what may be touched. This was a physical mountain. This was a real mountain to which these people came. It was physical on earth. And he says there was a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Think of this blazing fire, just a huge orange ball of flame and heat. You know, some people estimate that the temperature of a volcano at full blast reaches up to a thousand degrees Celsius. I'm imagining that this would be even higher. 1,000 degrees Celsius is about 20 percent of the surface temperature of the sun itself, twice the surface temperature of the planet Venus, which when it's closest to the sun. Heat, fire and a flame. Imagine how terrifying it would be simply to observe that. And then more than that, all of the smoke that covered the mountain, darkness and gloom, thick darkness where you could not see anything, could not see even each other's faces, except to see this glowing ball of raging fire above you. And a tempest, he says. There was something like a hurricane, with the sound of howling wind and thunder and lightning. You know, uh, several months ago there was a hurricane which was one of the worst in United States history in uh, the island of Sanibel in the United States where one of our former former pastor is pastoring now and there were videos on YouTube of the hurricane as it was approaching and even watching it on YouTube was terrifying you could hear the howling wind you could see the sea raging you could see the trees shaking and these people are seeing all this at the base of Mount Sinai a blazing fire darkness Hurricane and then a sound of a trumpet. And this trumpet sound is not something celebratory, no, it's something foreboding, something filled with warning, something ominous. This huge sound of the trumpet that's warning them of their lives that they might be consumed by this fire of God Himself, the Creator, approaching to meet with them, the Creator and Judge. But none of that was as terrifying as what comes next in verse 19. They heard a voice. Whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them? They heard the voice of the infinite, almighty creator God Himself, and His voice was so frightening that they begged, Oh, please stop. We can't take this. They were terrified, they felt like they had to run away. None of them was even allowed to approach the mountain, they would be put to death. Because none of these sinful people dared approach the presence of the Holy Creator. That's what he says next. They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. No creature could draw near. These people were terrified. They recognized they could not stand in God's presence. They realized as God had revealed to them that they needed a mediator. And so God had appointed Moses. Moses was the mediator for the people, a go-between, one who was ascending up and down the mountain on behalf of the people and bringing God's word to the people. But even Moses himself, God's own prophet, was terrified. The man of whom God says, I speak with him face to face, he says this, uh, verse 21, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Why such a spectacle in Exodus 19? Why such fear? Why such awesome terror? Well, friends, here at Exodus 19 and Mount Sinai, what we see tangibly is the infinite gap that exists between God Almighty in His incredible holiness and majesty and us in our miserable sinfulness. He is indeed transcendent and distinct from us. He is distant from us. He is the creator. We are the creation. We are mere creatures made from the dust. He is infinitely holy, blazing in his purity, awesome in his majesty. We are fallen, guilty, wretched sinners, thoroughly unworthy, unfit for his presence. And it goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, doesn't it? In the garden, God, our glorious creator, created Adam and Eve, created human beings to live in fellowship with him, to live and find life in his presence. But Adam and Eve, on behalf of us, sinned against God, rebelled against the great almighty king, broke his commands, and therefore brought the entire human race into condemnation All of us come into this world sinners and sinful. And Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence because of their sin. They were exiled, sent out of the garden. And the rest of the Bible is the story of how human beings might find a way back into the presence of God. Of how God makes a way for human beings to come back into His presence. Because unless God makes a way, no one dares approach His presence again. And that's what we see at Mount Sinai. You know, friends, we don't often recognize the God that we seek to worship. We come over here and and we sing songs. Maybe our minds, our hearts, not even grasping the gravity of what we're saying. We sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Do we even realize what that means to name Him as the Holiest One Think about Isaiah chapter 6, where the blazing seraphim, these burning angelic creatures who are completely pure in themselves and without sin, before the Lord God Almighty and before His majesty, they hide their faces and they cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy. Isaiah the prophet himself, coming face to face with the majesty of God, says, Woe to me! For I am a sinful man and I have seen the king. Moses is filled with fear and trembling. And this ought to affect when we think about who God is, how we approach him. No, as one person says, God is not just our only hope. He is not just our deepest joy. He is also our greatest threat. If we come to him and recognize him as he is in his holiness apart from Christ truly he is indeed in the truest sense of the word terrifying and yet did you notice that all important word at the beginning of the verse, the phrase there did you notice what the author says, verse 18, he says you have not come to this we have not come to Mount Sinai We have not come to that physical mountain filled with terror. Praise be to God. What have we come to? Where have we come? That's what he tells us in verses 22 to 24 as he shows us another mountain, another assembly. Verse 22 and following, he says, You have come to Mount Zion. Friends, this is a different mountain. This is an entirely different kind of experience and a different kind of assembly. And as he describes Mount Zion, we see what he means. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. And as we think about coming to a city, we recognize that we have come to a city that is home for all God's beloved people, those whom he loves. Uh, Throughout Hebrews, we've seen this, and especially in chapter 11, we saw God has prepared is preparing a heavenly city for those who love him for all those who trust in his promises we seek after that city that homeland whose architect and builder is god it is the heavenly jerusalem look at verse 22 he says the mount zion the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem you know there's a whole industry of uh, what they call these holy land tours they'll often contact me as a pastor of the church and, you know, you can go on one of these so-called Holy Land tours, and often people will go on these Holy Land tours, they want to go to Jerusalem, or to Israel, and sometimes people tend to mistakenly think that by going on a tour like that, or going to Israel and Jerusalem, you are closer, getting closer to God. And What I want to say is, I mean, it might be, it would be a profitable experience, no doubt. You'll learn a lot of geography, biblical geography. You'll learn some biblical archaeology and biblical history, and it will be very helpful in your reading of the Bible. But there is no, no spiritual worth in that, in the sense that you're going to draw closer to God somehow. No, friends, the Mount Zion that exists in Israel today and the Jerusalem that exists there has no spiritual significance because look at what the author says here. He's talking about a spiritual Jerusalem. He's not talking about the earthly Mount Zion. He's talking about a heavenly Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And we come to this heavenly Jerusalem not by catching a flight and going to Israel. We come to this heavenly Jerusalem by faith. That's what he has said throughout chapter 11. By faith in the reality of who God is and what he's done in Christ. We come to the city, the spiritual Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, whose gates are open wide because of the blood of Christ. And your ticket is faith in Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And then he goes on to describe what it's like to come into the city, what it's like to come to this mountain, what it's like to come to this assembly. There's a big party going on, right? He says this in verses 22 and following. He says, you've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Festal gathering simply means this is a festival, And there's tens of thousands and thousands upon thousands and millions probably of angels gathered singing praise, giving glory to God in great festivity. The word used over there is used to describe kind of like the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games. And that's what's going on. And that's what you come to as you come to Mount Zion. And he says in verse 23, You have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's not some elite class of people. Who are assembled there and they are firstborn and their names were enrolled, Brothers and sisters, that's you and me. And all Christians, all believers who have gone before us. all the way back, all of the people we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, those who trusted God throughout history, all of the heroes of church history that you've read of, all of the faithful saints who have gone before us, our loved ones who trusted in Christ. They're all there. That's the assembly of the firstborn. You see, Jesus is the firstborn, which means he inherits the kingdom. He inherits the fulfillment of all God's promises. And all of us who have trusted in him, we become the firstborn in in the sense that we inherit the fulfillment of God's promises. We inherit his kingdom. And our names are written in the book of life. And all of these believers who have gone before us they're no longer in the condition that they were on earth. It says that we've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Perfectly sanctified. They're there in holiness before our God. In this great celebration. In this great gathering. In the heavenly city. At Mount Zion. Singing praise. Giving glory to God. And, and here's something that you must not miss. Friends, this is not just some future experience that we look forward to. This is not just a future entry into the city, a future destination that we're going to. No, this is a heavenly city, a mountain, Mount Zion, a celebration that we have come to right here, right now. The heavenly Jerusalem is here. You've got to think of the context, right? The author, I told you, was preaching. This is a sermon to a church, to a congregation of Christians. And as they're gathered for worship, as they're gathered in God's presence, they're hearing God's word. And as he preaches God's word to them, he says, you have come. God's word says to you today, brothers and sisters, as you have assembled here in Jesus' name, you have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. So, you want a Holy Land tour? Well, uh, here's, here's some advertising for you. Week after week, Holy Land tours, spiritual tours, giving the full experience and taste of the heavenly Jerusalem, available for you by faith at your nearest gospel preaching, Bible-centered local church gathering. Every week, in the presence of innumerable angels, in the presence of the spirits of all those who have gone before us, all of the faithful, in God's presence himself, to meet with him in festive gathering at Mount Zion. The heavenly city that is coming down is here already. And we look forward to it as well. But did you notice what else he says? He says, you have come, verse 23, to God, the judge of all. We have come to God, the judge of all, at Mount Zion. You see, dear friends, God hasn't changed. God doesn't change. He cannot change. And when we think of God, the judge of all, we've got to recognize, this is the same God whose appearance was terrifying And overwhelming and fearful, whose presence caused the mountain to quake and brought darkness and fire and flame. This is the same God who is the righteous judge of all, before whose all-seeing eyes we will all have to give an account. And now we're saying he is God the judge and he can be approached in the context of a celebration? How? Well, the author tells us how. Because you look at verse 24, what he says. He says, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Brothers and sisters, the reason that we can come to Mount Zion is because Jesus, our Lord, the Son of God, went to Mount Calvary. And there on Mount Calvary... He hung on a cross, naked and ashamed, with the wrath of God poured out on Him. The Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, Himself absorbed the full terror of Mount Sinai. The blazing fire and the blackness, the gloom and the hurricane, the hurricane and the fiery flame of the all-consuming fire of God's wrath fell upon Him, engulfed Him. And He took it all, For sinners like us, so that by faith in him and in his blood, we might be free of Sinai's terror and we might approach God in the heavenly celebration of Mount Zion. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant through which we draw near to God. And in this new covenant, there is full and complete forgiveness of sins by his perfect sacrifice. There is eternal life. We get new hearts that enable us to live according to God's commands and we can draw near. We can know God. We can worship Him. We can approach His throne by His grace. Did you notice what the author says? He says, We have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel might remember from chapter 11 of Abel. Abel was the first man to be murdered in scripture, in history, in human history, Genesis chapter 4. He was a righteous man. He was innocent and his brother, being jealous of him, murdered him. And there as we read that, Abel's death brought condemnation upon the one who killed him. God Himself says that Abel's blood was crying out to Him from the ground. Abel's blood was, Abel's death was screaming for justice to be served, screaming for vengeance to be brought. Abel's death brought condemnation. Jesus' death brings justification. His sprinkled blood, His blood poured out on behalf of sinners testifies that the righteous demands of God's holy law, the holy demands of God's justice have been perfectly satisfied by His death. Jesus' blood has silenced Sinai's terrors so that we can draw near. So how should we respond to so great a salvation, to so perfect a sacrifice, To so great a Savior? How should we respond in light of our access and arrival and our promised future home in the heavenly city? Well, the author tells us, verse 25, we must pay attention and receive His revelation. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. You know, we have voices all around us, all the time, every second and minute of our lives, constantly, every day, voices that are clamoring for our attention, that are seeking to get into our minds and hearts. And dear friends, nothing is more important, more vital, than the voice of God himself as he speaks. It is so critical that we hear God's voice. It's a matter of life and death, of heaven and hell. And, And here the author is saying, do not refuse him who is speaking. You see, dear friends, the voice that spoke at Sinai that shook the mountain, that terrified the people, that same voice speaks in and through God's word, through the preaching of God's word. He speaks now and he warns you, he calls you, he exhorts you through his word not to refuse him, to respond to his self-revelation. And so if you're here this morning and you are not in Christ, if you don't know the Lord, if you have not put your faith in Christ, I want to speak to you. See to it that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. I want to call you not to harden your heart against God's voice. Don't just shake off what I'm saying and go from here unchanged. No, flee, dear friend. Flee from your sin. Flee to Mount Zion. Flee to this heavenly city. Flee to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, who stands ready and willing to save all those who will put their trust in Him give you full and free forgiveness of sins by His blood. If you're here this morning and maybe you call yourself a Christian, maybe you've been attending church for years, maybe you think that you're a Christian, but really, even as I've been speaking, you realize you've reinvented God in your mind. You have been worshiping a God of your own imaginings. Maybe you're even a member of the church, but your heart has been hardened and you've never really known the Lord. If that's you, I want to speak to you this morning. See to it that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. Hear the voice of God addressing you from the scriptures. God himself addresses you this morning, calling you to put your faith in him, in Christ. Friends, think of the context of this letter, this sermon. This was preached to a number of Christians who were struggling, who were tempted to turn away from Christ. That's a temptation we all face in lesser or greater measure in our lives in different ways, especially when we walk through suffering. And what is it that will keep us in the faith? What is it that will help us keep moving forward? What is it that will keep our hearts in the love of Christ? Well, it's right here. The voice of God through the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, addresses us from heaven in his preached word. And thus our ears must be eager, our hearts must be responsive. As John Owen said, faithful attention to the preaching of the gospel is absolutely necessary to persevere in professing the gospel. Because, dear friends, if we refuse his voice, there will be eternal and earth-shattering consequences. That leads to our second reason that we must respond to God's revelation with gratitude and reverence. Not only have we come to God's heavenly assembly, but second, we have received His unshakable kingdom. We have received his unshakable kingdom. This is in verses 25 to 27. Did you notice the logic of verse 25? He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. You see, as we contrast Mount Sinai and Mount Zion... You might be tempted wrongfully to think that we've come to something less. And therefore, the penalties here are less. And nothing could be further from the truth. No, the logic of the author here, as we've seen throughout Hebrews, is actually in Christ, as we've come to Mount Zion, we have come to something far greater. And therefore, the penalty for refusing it, rejecting it, hardening our hearts against it will be greater. It's an argument from lesser to the greater. Think of it this way. If you walk out of here and you go to your vehicle and you find the Mawakif guy giving you a ticket and you get into an altercation with him and an argument and dishonor him, you you might face some consequences. They'll be bad, but not that bad. But the consequences for you would be far, far greater if you happen to find yourself in the majlis of the sheikh and you dishonored him there. No, you see, in the Old Covenant, they had a mediator, Moses, a flawed man, just like us, warning them from earth, warning them on earth. We have received a revelation. We come to a mediator who is far, far greater, Jesus, the Son of God himself. And he warns from heaven. He warns us from heaven. And the penalty for resisting him will be infinitely greater. You see, friends, the voice that spoke at Sinai, that shook the earth, the voice that speaks to you today through the preaching of God's word, will speak again and bring another shaking. Did you see that? Verses 26 and following. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. You know, he's quoting there when he says, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens, that promise. He's quoting from the book of Haggai, chapter 2. And in Haggai, chapter 2, the context there is God is speaking of the rebuilding of his temple. And when he says, I'm going to shake all of heaven and earth and bring its treasures into my house, my temple, he's speaking of his temple being rebuilt and everything else being destroyed in judgment. And of course, as we continue reading the story of the Old Testament, as we come to the new covenant, we see that this has not yet taken place. No, it's speaking of a final day when Jesus, our Lord, will return and when the voice of God will thunder again with glory and heaven and earth will be shaken and on that day, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, Mount Zion, God's own temple will expand to fill the entire world and this present world will be shaken, will perish, will be gone And so the question for us is, for you and me is, what are you living for? What are you living for, dear friend? What are you giving your time and your energy and your attention and your devotion to in this life, in this world? everything that you live for in this world, it's all going to pass away, whether that's your job or your career or your ambitions or your savings account or your investments or your children's education or some big land that you've purchased somewhere, whatever it is that you're giving yourself to in this world, whether that's entertainment or friendships, just outside in the world, it's all going to perish For one day the voice of God will shake heaven and earth like a toddler shakes a little doll. A day is coming, it's going to perish. It will not last. And on that day, only God's unshakable kingdom, His church, His temple, His city, His people will remain. So if you're here and you're not in Christ, I want you to know, if you are not in Christ, if you are not a part of His kingdom, you will experience this shaking And you will perish in that shaking apart from entry into God's unshakable kingdom. So hear his voice and respond today. Dear friends, brothers and sisters, wake up. This is a wake-up call. What are we living for? Only God's kingdom is unshakable. Only Christ our Lord will reign forever and ever. Great civilizations, mighty empires, kings, kingdoms, politicians, they've all been swept away throughout history. We've seen this. They will be swept away. They will be shaken and perish. Only his kingdom has remained. Only his kingdom will remain. And here's the great good news for you and me who are in Christ. In Christ by faith, we have received His unshakable kingdom. The kingdom that cannot be shaken, the kingdom that will never pass away, is ours in Christ. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's delight to give you the kingdom. Not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but because of His grace, for His glory, He's given it to us in Christ. We're a part of that unshakable kingdom right now. And when his voice shakes heaven and earth once again, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we, his church, will not be shaken. And so, what should the posture of our hearts be as we have received this great kingdom? The answer is grateful, reverent, worship and awe did you see what he says verses 28 and 29 therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire and that leads to our third reason we must respond to God's revelation with gratitude with reverence and awe First, we've come to his heavenly assembly. Second, we've received his unshakable kingdom in Christ. And third, we recognize that we worship a consuming fire. The author commands us to approach God with hearts full of gratitude, with reverence, with awe. And he reminds us again of who we're dealing with He is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. He is holy, holy, holy. Majestic and awesome. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. And to approach Him, we dare not be casual. We dare not come to him lightly on our own terms. Thinking that sin is no big deal, that we can do whatever we want. When we come to this consuming fire lightly, we would be destroyed. No, dear friends, we must approach him with worship that is acceptable in his sight. Filled with gratitude, reverence and awe. With grateful hearts. And with reverent hearts. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to approach God with acceptable worship, with reverence and awe? I'll give you three aspects of acceptable worship. First, it means that we worship Him in Christ. We worship Him in Christ. We dare not come to guard the all-consuming fire outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we dare to approach God on our own merit, thinking that by our works somehow we gain access into His presence, we will be destroyed. We dare not approach God outside of the Savior, the mediator that He has provided, our Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to think of the context of what the author is saying here again. When he says our God is a consuming fire, he is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 24. And if you go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 4, you will see that Moses was commanding the people of Israel and telling them that if they are tempted to go after the idols and false gods... Of the other nations they would be judged by God Moses is warning them against their temptation to abandon the living God and go off into paganism and he tells them in that context God will not let you do that he is a jealous God he is a consuming fire you dare not turn your hearts away to idolatry and then when you come here to Hebrews chapter 12 you see that the author of Hebrews is applying it to these people these were Jewish Christians And they were tempted to abandon Christ and go back to living under the old covenant. And the author is telling them that if you were to dare to do that, that would be the equivalent of idolatry. That would be the equivalent of going off into paganism and our God is a consuming fire and you will face his judgment if you turn away from Christ. Dear friends, hear this clearly. Any attempt to worship God outside of Christ is idolatry in any religion in the world. Worshipping God outside of Christ is idolatry. And if we dare come to God, the all-consuming fire outside of Christ, it will be like a mosquito caught in a nuclear bomb blast, incinerated. You see, it's only in Christ that we are not consumed by the consuming fire that is God's essence. The righteousness of God outside of Christ is a holy flame but for those of us who are in Christ, His righteousness is a hiding place. He is our refuge. Second Acts aspect of acceptable worship is that we must worship God, the consuming fire, according to His word. According to His word. You know, again, as the author speaks of acceptable worship and of a consuming fire, God being a consuming fire, he wants our minds to think back to the book of Leviticus in chapter 10, where two priests, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, came to God to worship him, and the Bible says they offered strange fire before the Lord, which means that they offered a kind of worship that he had not commanded, that was not according to what God himself had prescribed in his word. And as they dared to approach God on their own terms, with their own idea of worship, fire came from the Lord and consumed them. And they were dead that day. They faced God's judgment. You see, there there are two kinds of idolatry. One form of idolatry is where we worship the wrong God. The second kind of idolatry is when you worship the true God, but in a way that He has not commanded according to your own ideas and imagination. And this is very instructive for us, brothers and sisters, concerning our worship on the Lord's Day, concerning what we do in these gatherings. See, we're seeing a great trivialization of worship throughout Christianity in churches around the world. It's become some sort of an entertainment performance and show started to foster a kind of consumer mindset... where worship becomes all about what I'm going to experience... rather than the kind of worship that the one we're worshiping... God Almighty demands and calls us to give. And then you have all of this stuff being introduced... like the smoke machines and the laser light show... lights, camera, action. No, the Lord will have none of it. Brothers and sisters, we dare not approach Him on our own terms... We must come and worship in an acceptable way with grateful hearts, with reverence and awe according to His word and His commands. Finally, third aspect of acceptable worship. We worship Him in Christ. We worship according to His word. Finally, we worship in obedience to His word. Worship that obeys His word. That means that we come here with hearts that are ready to receive his revelation and respond. We receive his word with grateful hearts for all that he's done for us in Christ. And we are changed. That we go from here living all of life as worship unto him. Living in obedience. That the beholding of God in worship and in his word transforms us to be like Christ. So that all of life becomes acceptable worship unto him. That we pursue holiness and Christ-likeness. A holy, committed love to God and love for one another. In fact, that's what the rest of Hebrews 13 is about. He talks about acceptable worship here. And in Hebrews 13 he says, this applies in all of life. Live for Christ in this way. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one says what is the chief end of man man's chief end is to glorify god and enjoy him forever and you know we taste that in corporate worship we glorify god and enjoy him together and that's pretty amazing don't you think to glorify god And enjoy Him. The triune God. Who has eternally existed. As Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The creator God who spoke. And all of the universe was created by His word. Who created man and woman in His own image. According to His likeness. To know Him and worship Him. The God who righteously judges sin the God who enters into covenant relationship with his people the God who came in power and glory on Mount Sinai and the earth shook in light of his presence the God who turns away his wrath from sinners at Mount Calvary in the provision of our Lord Jesus Christ to die a substitutionary death for all who repent and believe The God who has created a heavenly city, a new heavens and a new earth in which we will forever dwell beholding his glorious face. In Christ, we glorify this God and we will enjoy him forever. What are you living for? Let's pray. Father, we thank you For the amazing privilege of knowing you, almighty God. For the unshakable kingdom that we have received in Christ. For the heavenly assembly to which we have come in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in which we will forever enjoy you. Help us, Lord, to respond with hearts that are thankful and reverent. And to live all of life as an act of acceptable worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.